Hello, I am the host of Shifting Culture, Joshua Johnson. I just want to come on before the episode and tell you all thank you for listening. Did you know that big things are coming for Shifting Culture and you can be a part of it? We have just launched a Patreon. When you become a monthly patron to the show, you will get our episode ad-free, get early access to episodes, be able to download episode guides, and get bonus shows. Go to patreon.com slash shifting culture to support all that we are doing. Your support means that we can continue to help the body of Christ look more like Jesus. Again, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture. Thank you so much. Now, on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Shifting Culture Podcast, in which we have conversations about the culture we create and the impact we can make. We long to see the body of Christ look like Jesus. I'm your host, Joshua Johnson. Go to shiftingculturepodcast.com to interact and donate. And don't forget to hit the follow button on your favorite podcast app to be notified when new episodes come out each Tuesday. And go give us a rating and review that would help us get in front of new listeners who could benefit from these conversations as well. Well, previous guests on the show have included Sharon Hottie Miller, Drew Hyun, and Mandy Smith. You could go back, listen to those episodes, and more. But today's guest is Jen Pollock Michelle. Jen is an award winning author and speaker, and her latest book, In Good Time, released just last December. We have a great discussion around time anxiety, productivity, waiting actively, rest, rule of life, and receiving the good gifts that God has given us. I know you'll enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So here is Jen Pollock, Michelle. Jen, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you on. Thanks for coming. Yeah, thank you for your invitation. I appreciate it. Yeah, you know, as I was, I was reading your your book in good time, which, which I love. It's great. As the beginning comes through and you're writing the first few chapters. I was growing in anxiety, thinking about all of the productivity, uh, the time hacks. Uh, a lot of books that I read is knowledge about something. And so I know mm-hmm. a lot about something, but you actually root this within your own story. So it feels mm-hmm. very grounded and rooted. Um, my question is, is were you feeling that time anxiety in your own life um, and feeling anxious as you're working towards productivity? Um, and how did you start to counterbalance that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Like productivity is supposed to be a strategy for solving your time anxiety. But in many ways, I think it is just like it's like kindling that you continue to throw on on the fire. In many ways, it's because the measure of productivity is sort of endless. Yeah. Really, the question that productivity is always asking is like, how how much faster can you get more done? How much faster can you get more done? More done, more done, more done. It's not as if productivity is really like, because we all know like there's never get it. You'll never get to the bottom of your to-do lists. Yeah. And so, yeah, I would say that I was, I have been a pretty anxious person striving after productivity. Yeah. I think part of that anxiety was, you know, they're like an anxiety to learn new strategies and methods, always that kind of desire to like get the next book, listen to that next podcast, you know, find a new hack, really. Um, And, you know, it always felt like I'm sure I'm doing this wrong because I do continue to feel anxious. (laughs) Um, And not recognizing, I think what happened in the pandemic is, well, A, I couldn't get things done in the way that I was used to getting things done. Part of that was just living in a household now with like all of my kids home, my college kids home, my school age kids home. And we're all working from the same place. And, you know, we still have to get things, we still have to get things done in the sense of like, you know, we still have deadlines and the kids had assignments, but like we couldn't get them done in the traditional way. You couldn't like hurry and be as efficient, I guess, in the traditional way. And you had to accept the contingency of life, Mm -hmm. the fact that we ha- now have seven people on the internet. We have, I have five kids. So 
seven people straining the internet um, and just what spaces were available to work. And my older daughter is a clarinetist. And so she had to find time to practice. And so we had to like reconfigure the family schedule. So there were just all these ways that I just realized this, okay, this isn't working. And like, are these assumptions even good? And I think it was in the pandemic when I just really started to question the assumptions of time management. And I think most importantly, I think I would say this in the book, and I think the biggest shift for me was to start to stop trying to like control my life and start trying to just receive it, receive it as a gift, receive the interruptions, the contingencies, as I already mentioned, and just the days as they came, which didn't mean like laissez-faire, you know, whatever gets done, gets done. I don't think that I've stopped trying to be intentional um, and faithful, I think is probably the better word, I hope. Um, (laughs) But I think it's a lot less about control. Mm. Yeah, I I could see that. Uh, What Then how did that really affect and how did productivity seep into your relationship uh, with Jesus um, mm. and your Christian life. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think when you accept productivity as a good, like as an infallible good, then you automatically assume that Jesus just wants you to get more things done. Mm-hmm. Um, that as long as you're busy and you know doing meaningful things, um, then you can feel good about your life, right? That you know somehow you must be oriented to the kingdom of Jesus as long as you're about kingdom activities. And I think that I have lived many years beyond my limits, truthfully, um, where a lot of it was like taking on too many volunteer responsibilities, for example. Like that's an easy one because it sort of feels like, well, why would I say no to this really good invitation to do like good work for a good cause? I mean, a lot of a lot of it for me was oriented towards church. You know, these are people I love, people I would love to, you know, do this thing with. Um, and I, I believe in this ultimate good, you know, that I'm contributing to. Um, but I think that, truthfully, like, I was probably more irritable than I really want mm. to admit. Um, I think that certain things get crowded out with productivity, even in, a, in your life with Jesus, you know, like reflection, celebration, rest. These are not the kinds of like those are activities that actually don't move you forward on any list because they're really a little bit more oriented toward toward. I mean, not rest in particular, but I'm thinking about celebration. I'm thinking about reflection. These are oriented toward the past, you know, reflecting on what has been, what God has given, what life and days and hours you've lived. Um, And so I think those kinds of things were crowded out. I I. I would say that in general, like I tried prioritizing my family and I think they would probably say that I did. Um, There were some things that I missed out on that now, of course, you know, with a little bit of time, I look back and think, gosh, I wish that I'd chosen that thing for that kid rather than, you know, maybe another. And it it was always a competing good. That's the thing Mm -hmm. is that it's not usually about bad and good. It's about good and better (laughs) (laughs) or or sometimes good and good and you don't even you're you're, you find yourself um a little bit puzzled and perplexed about discerning the good and i think it was challenging for me to discern the good in my life with jesus because i had such a productivity mindset i just assumed busyness was good activity was good yeah yeah and and i can see that and i just was reflecting on my own journey in my own life as my wife and I lived in the Middle East for five years and worked uh, with Syrian refugees, mm-hmm. but it felt like there was, they had a different time mentality, um, especially than I do. Like I am a very, I'm a time oriented person. I think about time a lot. I want to be on time. I want to finish on time and I want to continue just do my work and be productive in the midst of it. Um, and that's not the culture that I was living in, the culture mm-hmm. that I was living in was like, it's going to happen, but we don't have to get it done right away. Like there is a, a different mentality. And mm-hmm. Jesus lived uh, in a a different culture than we in the West do. He lived in a, a place where it was very collectivistic. It was 
a place. It was an honor shame culture. And he's writing to this this place. He's living in this place and speaking to his disciples in a place where we're actually being able to walk down the road and interact with his disciples. Mm-hmm. How then, as we were thinking about our productivity and our time and our time management in the West and in our individualistic culture, are we... How do we then read scripture to reorient our lives? How do we live closer to what Jesus was living when we're uh, ordering our life in this highly time-oriented, individualistic Western society? Mm. I've thought a lot about this because in one sense, I do think that Christianity has always been and continues to be a resistance movement that we need habits of resistance, ways that we say, whoa, the culture is doing some crazy things. And like, I want to resist that. I don't want to be formed by that. On the other hand, I also feel like there are certain conditions of time today that I think are so big and all encompassing that I don't know that we're going to change them. And I would say, most importantly, a techni- the technological age that we live in shapes and habituates us to a certain sense of time. Um, So that, for example, um, I was reading some research that was just talking about how the past is like, it quickly becomes the past, like trends, um, they they are shorter. And so they, and they come more quickly, more furiously. So it feels like Something that you did today, if you try to do it in another week, like, oh, that's that's like, you know, that's so yesterday. Yeah. Um, and so I don't think we're going to be able to change some of the conditions of time today. Mm-hmm. Um, but what are the habits of resistance that we can have? Well, first of all, I think we have to we have to immerse ourselves in a story of time that is oriented to goals different than productivity and efficiency and just getting things done and usefulness, a kind of instrumentality of time, thinking about time as instrument. I use time to get things done. Um, I don't think that's the scriptural story of time. I think in to immerse ourselves in a different story of time, the first of first thing we see is like time is a gift. You know, it's it's actually given to us by the creator. and it's actually set as a limit on our lives too. You know, we are made mortal beings. And so Psalm 90 would say, um, you know, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God, you're the only timeless one. And we return to the dust um, apart from God's giving, uh, granting us participation in his eternal life. So immersing ourselves in the story of time, like the time scale, I guess, that Psalm 90 would give us, God is everlasting, we are not. And also that, you know, how God entered into time, entered into the suffering of time, um, even death itself, um, the ultimate change that time brings to mortal human beings. And so these are mysteries that um, are so deep and that we rehearse Sunday after Sunday. So I think you got to get yourself into church. You got to be in a worshiping community that rehearses this story. You have to read the Bible. You have to like orient yourselves to a different story of time. And then I think we do have to look at our technological habits. I think that the more that we engage into the effortlessness of technology and the speed of technology, that that we're, our desires are formed where we want things to be quick and easy, you know? Yeah. Like, I want no resistance in the world. Sometimes, like for me, truthfully, can I just tell you a little story? Yeah. Yesterday, I was I was actually fixing like a small appliance in my kitchen. Now, anybody who does knows me would think that's crazy. Jen doesn't do that kind of stuff. And I don't. But I'm like, I, you know what? Like, how can I engage a practice of like just attending to something in my life? It's going to take me a couple hours to watch the YouTube videos, to get the right tools. I had to run to Ace Hardware, had to come back. <laughs> had to order things, you know, that did order a few things on Amazon. They haven't yet arrived. But like fixing something can actually be a spiritual practice instead of just like, oh, well, throw it out, you know, get something new. So these practices where we engage, because just the resistance of mm. normal, ordinary human life. I mean, I the whole book is, you know, uh, about that. And I feel like I'm discovering new practices all the time where I can live a better story and I can actually like engage 
a way of being in the world that doesn't just demand mm. effortlessness, ease, and convenience. Mm. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the Bible is written with, with a lot of prose, which, uh, and mm. is very narrative. Um, and it's very much different than a lot of religious traditions. If you think of, of scripture as a whole, as a narrative story, uh, but it, you know, God has created us as narrative beings, as people that, that respond to story, that live in story, that will want to, to grow in our story. So what are some of the, the ways that we could rehearse the story um, mm. and start to write uh, God's story in our, into our life? Mm-hmm. I think, you know, wisdom literature has in particular been something really formative for me over the last couple of years. I've been thinking about the ways of wisdom and how their narrative is a huge part of wisdom, right? Yeah. There's this um, tradition keeping tradition kind of wisdom forms traditions and is a tradition formed within communities stories that we tell that we rehearse that we retell i mean i even think about psalm 90 again i've already mentioned it a couple times it's sort of on my mind recently but you know lord you've been our dwelling place from uh, from all in all generations mm-hmm. um that to me remind automatically what i think of is gosh here was a psalm a prayer a song um sung in the jewish community to remind themselves they had inherited a story, a story that, you know, God was the God of Abraham, of Isaac and Jacob. So one narrative practice I think that is important for us to live a different story of time is actually to like tell our histories, you know, engage our histories, try to think about ways in which we are formed by prior generations. That could be biological, but that could also be church communities, you know, and I know that we're coming from an American context. So history is sort of a funny thing, right? We're sort of like, we're a very inventive people. We kind of, I don't know, eschew history and always sort of believe we're doing the next great big mm. thing. You know, we don't have to think about the past. Um, but I think the Bible reminds us that we are creatures of the past, yeah. you know, that we inherit stories How do we keep those stories? I mean, I do think that a practice that's really important for me as a writer, and I don't want to impose it on other people, but it does seem to be a practice that is commended to us in Scripture is just keeping our story, keeping our own story. You know, Psalm 78, what are the ways that God has been faithful to your family, to past generations? What What are the ways God has been faithful to you? What are the stories you want to tell your children? that you wanna tell your grandchildren. Even to see ourselves like in that timeline where we expand from just the present. I think that we are in a moment of history where we think really mostly about the present and a lot about the future. Um, There's a lot of research to talk about the time famine that we live in. So what's happening is that we're amassing resources to sort of protect us and help us for this future that's coming. Um, That's what you do in a famine. You amass your resources, right? As little as you may think that they are. Um, And so I think thinking about the past is something that's very integral to developing kind of a faithful story of time. Um, I I think there's a lot of communal stuff that has to happen. This is not an individualistic sort of quest. And that's another thing that I realized in my research about time management is how much focus there was on the individual. Yeah. Like the center of the story was always that hero. And I think to live time well, we have to like be in communities. Um, And in particular, because, you know, sometimes we forget the story and our family members, you know, I'm not thinking necessarily biological, although that might be true, but our spiritual family members remind us of the story that we're living in. You know, even like funerals. Funerals is a that's a wonderful way to kind of mark time, yeah, and um, be participating with the elderly. I'm caring for my aging mother now who has Alzheimer's, and so I'm with older people more than I have ever been before as I go to visit her in, in the community where she lives. There's a lot of timekeeping that happens there, like where I'm I'm suddenly rescued from that story that at a I'm going to be forever young. 
<laughs> and B, the most important moment that happens is like now, like my life now. Yeah. When I go and visit her, I think about, well, what 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 is the legacy that I'm I'm building? What preparation am I making for for the end of my life? Um, so those are I don't know if those are hopefully people have found a couple practical things there in what I've said. <laughs> yes. Uh, as practical so then let's let's just uh boil it down or, or say how do we do do that uh daily weekly monthly yearly um and then over the course of our life mm-hmm. well daily i think we have to first of all orient ourselves to the giver of time in worship and in praise and that might look like the first moment that you wake up you say something like you know um the lord is my shepherd i shall not want you know like this maybe it's, it could be one simple scripture it could be from everlasting to everlasting you are god it could be another prayer from psalm 90 teach me to number my days that i can grow a heart of wisdom so at some point and i think a wonderful point like to do it is the upon the first waking of day, you orient yourself to the idea that your life is a gift, that every breath is a gift, that every moment is a gift, and and it is given to you by God. And so you give him thanks and you give him praise. Um, Creating time, uh, observing time. I don't even want to say making time. I don't think we make time. I think we observe time to immerse ourselves in scripture in some way. And I think that can be creatively done. I don't think it... Um, you know, I think about people, you know, I've had a friend who was a transplant surgeon, for example, and like, I've never met a person with a crazier schedule yeah. um, where, you know, you have to answer the phone like as soon as it rings and you aren't planning your days in a traditional way. So I don't want to suggest that you have to sit down with your Bible, you know, first thing in the morning. But I think Christians who want to grow in time faith are going to find themselves in scripture in some way. Yeah. Every day. I think I want to say that. I mean, when I was a mom nursing twins and I had three younger children older than them, all that meant for me was sticking a psalm in the pocket of my nursing chair and taking it out. I like had one psalm for an entire year that I actually never even memorized, <laughs> but I meditated on it a lot. That's what scripture immersion looked like for me. Weekly, I think we have to, I already mentioned, I think being in a worshiping community in person, if possible, if we're healthy enough to get ourselves there, um, I think that there's no substitute for that. I think that we see in scripture that people carry us through seasons of doubt, spiritual drought. Um, Those are the times you don't want to go to church, but it's the most important times. And collectively, we rehearse a story, um, even as we hear a call to worship, for example, and as we take the Lord's Supper, and we, you know, that's a story. That's a narrative practice, right? Um, other ways, I mean, that you can be connected in, to community. You could certainly be at church every week and sitting on the back pew and not, you. nobody sees you, nobody yeah. knows you, so other Weekly for me, a practice is to try to get myself into conversation with people where I can be seen and known and confess and receive um, forgiveness, you know. Um, Monthly, I think reflection is a huge practice. It's something that I've been trying to do is just to set aside some time every month to look back. Because as I mentioned, I think our propensity is to just attend the present or amass resources for the future, plan, 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 rather than looking back. And it's a practice of examine, I think, um, you know, where where has God shown up? You know, what's been life giving, life draining? What, you know, what do I want to ask God for in the time that's ahead based on the time that I've lived? You know, I could be caught in a pattern of, of sin or, or just disbelief in anything. And I would just say reflection seasonally, annually, retreat, solitude, these practices where you can take some time off. Um, doesn't have to always just be in the quiet of some cloister. 
Um, I think vacation is a good thing. I'm good. We, my husband and I have really said, especially as our kids go, grow older, this is a priority for us to try to get our family together, be away from home. And who knows what that will look like always, but we're going to try to prioritize it. Mm. Those are great practices. And, and it actually makes me feel like I, I don't know, I could go uh, through time in a way where I feel more rooted and grounded. And I yeah. think that's the thing I've I've always asked and tried to figure out how do I go slow uh, and get things done mm. <laughs> at the same time. I've, <laughs> that's the problem, right? So I I have this culture that is that is weighing on me and, yeah. and an, an internal like motivation of I want to accomplish something. And then I also have this internal motivation that I actually want to go. I I realize that there is an invitation to go slower, yeah. and to to be more rooted and connected to a God who uh, is really outside of the bounds of time. Um, mm-hmm. And so, how is that? Is that something where it's a futile exercise for me to say I can go slow and I can actually accomplish? Uh, a lot of things or mm. is it something where you can do that and something like this being rooted into uh, a story to examine to reflect and to to move forward can actually accomplish that for me mm-hmm. um i'm going to relay a story that a friend told me about visiting um it was a convent actually it's a female friend and she was taking a retreat there and she said you know what was so interesting? This was one observation that she made, and it was the observation that I found like really interesting yeah. in terms of thinking about time. She said they'd actually like they there is a bit of swiftness in a convent, but it's not a swiftness that is about hurry. It's a swiftness that's about decisiveness. Hmm. Like if you're in a convent or you're in a monastery. Usually those communities are operating according to a rule of life. Some things have already been decided. Here are the hours we will work. Here are the hours we will pray. Here are the hours we will eat together as a community. You know, here are the hours that we're going to, you know, whatever, study. Um, And so that there's a decisiveness that allows them to move rather swiftly to, you know, from work to prayer to prayer to table to table to bed, you know, whatever the rhythms of that community are. That actually helped me a lot because I feel like I've had the same kind of, I felt the same tension as you. Like, okay, is my invitation to just sort of like take all the urgency off my life, feel no pressure, just kind of like drift through my days, whatever God has me to do. Or, you know, temperamentally, I think for, it sounds like you and I are pretty similar temperamentally and maybe people who are listening to this podcast too. Like if you're a more type A person, like, are you just suddenly supposed to become type B? <laughs> and so I think, well, first of all, I will say, yes, I do think there is an invitation to rest. And I think resting is a slowing down. Yeah. I think that is a practice and a rhythm that is important for every Christian. Because when we rest, what we're really saying is, I can be still and know that you are God. And sometimes there is enforced rest in our life when we are sick, when we are grieving. You know, that's like, I think one thing that's wonderful about rest is that actually allows us to receive like seasons of forced rest, you know, like, okay, I know this practice. Like, I know what it's like to live a day where I don't check things off my list. We should know that because that might, that's going to happen to all of us, you know, if we're given the time to grow old, right? That's what I notice in the community where my mom lives. Um, so yes, there is a slowing down that's in and that's that is happens in rest. But I also think that what we really want is I think all of us really want to better discern what God is calling us to vocationally how we can live in faithful response to God's voice. And the more discerning that we become, the more decisive we are in the midst of our days. We're like, I don't have, I'm not mired in a paralysis of like, oh no, what next, Lord? You know, this or that. But like a rule of life, and this is a practice that I've taken up in the last couple of years, is like a deciding ahead of time. These are the things that, that that seem, you know, in conversation 
with God that seem to matter, yeah. seem to matter for the season. Now, of course, there are new invitations that come and interruptions to that. And I prayerfully, you know, by walking by the Spirit, try to respond to those. Yeah. But I can have a certain swift and decisiveness about life when I've done that work of prayerful discernment in conversation with God. Yeah, I think a rural life is really important. So we're trying to do that within our church community. Um, um, and so we're we're doing it uh, individually as families. Um, we actually are now split up into to home churches and we gather once a month corporately. So we do it as a, we're trying to do it as a home church and we're trying to do it as a larger body of having these the this rule of life. And so what are our larger communal practices? What are our home church practices? What are our family practices? What are our individual practices? So that we could be formed and look like Jesus. Um, I love that. So how, so tell me then, what is a rule of life since you mentioned that? Um, and then how do we structure that and put things into practice so that we could look like Jesus? Mm-hmm. I love that your church community is doing that. I think that that is fantastic. Um, for me, the easiest way that I've come to think about a rule of life is a way to pattern our lives in faithful response to God's voice um, so that, you know, th the patterning would suggest practices that become regular in your life where, you know, every day, you know, every week, you know, we already kind of talked about that every season every year, you know, I kind of am doing some certain grounding practices that just keep me oriented to God, to his story, to living in faithful response to his voice. Um, and I think that idea of living in response to God's voice means everybody's rule of life is going to look different. You know, my when I've been working on it, my husband doesn't have a rule of life. And he was a little bit like, wait, why do Christians need a rule of life? You know, because like, don't we have the Bible? And don't we kind of know what our commands are, you know, love God, love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Um, and I would say that a rule of life is a way in which you just discern what's that look like for you? Yeah. What does it look like for you in per in your particular life with your particular roles, your particular responsibilities? What does it look like for you to love God? And have you ever stopped to ask, who is my neighbor? You know, <laughs> who are my neighbors? What responsibilities can, do I bear towards them? Um, and, you know, how do I love myself, too? I mean, I don't want to be drawn toward a false love of myself, but I don't want to leave myself out of the picture, too. Um, so for me, the way that I've thought of a rule of life is it's just I, I have actually done it by roles because I think I think about, you know, what does my life look like as a wife? What does it look like as a mother, um, as a daughter now in the season of caring for my mother, as a friend, as a writer and, you know, speaker, um, student as well? What does it look like for me as a neighbor and a citizen and then and as a self in this world? And so that's the way that I kind of work through it. I mean, it's a lot of just like the patterning. What does this look like on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis to love my husband, yeah. to love my children, to love my mom? I loved how I, I think I heard Stephen Machia talking about St. Benedict, his rule being a safeguarding of love. Mm. And I think that that is something really beautiful. And one of the things the themes in the book is about Basidia. If we could go on a long rabbit trail about that, I'll say simply that the monks had wonderful language to, the, to, to know the human soul and to know that we are resistant to the demands of love, mm -hmm. that love places demands and burdens on our lives. And we would be resistant to those. I think we would be even more resistant to those in a technological age, you know, where we think everything should be oriented toward my ease, comfort, convenience. So a rule of life is like a grappling with those demands. Yeah. But it's in response to God's voice. I mean, you don't like it's not a hero's statement, you know, it's just, yeah. Lord, for this season, what are the ways in which I can be faithful to your invitations? Mm. I love that. What are the ways that we can be faithful to his invitations? Um, and to, yeah, to hear his voice in the midst of that and to walk through different practices. Um, mm -hmm. you know, what, what are some, some things as you're, you're, you're walking through this? I want to 
talk a little bit about one of the the habits that you said is is waiting. And I think yeah. waiting uh, is a, a difficult thing for people in the West. Um, most people, it's a, it's a difficult thing. Um, you know, as mm-hmm. we, as my wife and I were, were struggling with having, having children uh, and had to go through, you know, fertility treatments and, and walk through that time period of waiting, which, hey, we have a miracle story of a baby that's here and, and he's five years old now and he is an incredible boy and we love him. And where you know that, you know, when I look at him, I actually see the the faithfulness of God. And that's a reflection mm-hmm. almost that I get to do daily that he just reminds me of God's faithfulness in the midst of a season of waiting. Um, how how do we wait well um, in a demanding age that we live in? Mm. Yeah, waiting is like the worst thing, right, in a technological age. You just automatically assume that anytime you're waiting is wasted. Like, I'm waiting in the grocery store line, wasted time. You know, I'm waiting to hear from that customer service person, like them answer the call, wasted. And I think like one of the things that we can do is orienting ourselves toward fruitfulness, like this metaphor in scripture that is all about like plant growing. You know, yeah. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Well, you know, just I don't know anything, honestly, truthfully about growing plants, except for my house plants, which I started to grow in the pandemic. But I don't want to pretend that I've like planted a garden and know any of these things, except that I've researched them. But um, waiting like wintering, for example, in a vineyard is a waiting season, but it's not an inactive season. Like it's a dormant season. Yeah. You you know, you don't see fruit on the, you don't see grapes on the vines, yeah. but what's happening in winter is that the root system, that's when the roots are growing deeper and deeper and deeper as a result actually of deprivation. Um, roots grow deeper when they're deprived. It's why you don't water, you're not supposed to water plants like regularly. They actually tell you in a vineyard, don't put a drip hose that would just regularly water the vines. You actually need like watering and then you need drought, water, drought, water, drought, um, because it's the drought and the deprivation that deepens the roots. So I think just to even have that image in our mind, like, okay, Lord, I'm waiting in this season. So you better be deepening my roots, you know, like do this work of deepening my faith in who you are in deepening my faith in what you're the activity that you're doing in the world, deepening my faith that prayer matters. You know, prayer is hard in a, in a waiting season. I think that waiting is very active. And I think sometimes it can look like Abraham, I think, you know, we, I think Abraham is a waiting story. Yeah. I don't think Abraham's kind of like real and honest prayers get enough publicity <laughs> in sermons, you know, because Abraham didn't just sort of fold his hands and say, okay, Lord, whatever you will bring this son. Like he was like, when, Lord, when, and why not, why not um, Ishmael? And why, you know, are you really going to just leave me with, my inherit my ha- head house servant inheriting everything like when lord when you know i want to see your goodness your faithfulness like these are he was waiting but it the waiting involved very honest conversation with god yeah and so i think that's a habit of waiting is like get into honest conversation with god tell him that it hurts that you are worried he's not going to come through that you struggle to see his goodness and his faithfulness, that you need a crumb. You need a crumb, a visible yeah. crumb of some evidence that he's that he's real and that he's doing something. Um, you need to wait with friends, mm. with your with your with your brothers and sisters in Christ, because thank God we don't all wait at the same time. And like you were saying, that you have your own story of waiting and seeing God at work. And so now that story is meant to encourage another brother or sister who's waiting. You've got to wait in community because it's the stories that other people have that where they've seen God's faithfulness, that's going to shore up your own um, faith in a season of waiting. Those are, you know, and I also think I want to just commend to people finding prayer resources that are written for you Mm -hmm. um, where you don't always, maybe you just don't have any words to pray. Get yourself 
an, uh, the Book of Common Prayer or some prayer resource, The Divine Hours, by Phil, edited by Phil, Phyllis Tickle for the season, Seeking God's Face. I mean, there's lots of so many different ones where you just just pray the prayers, pray the prayers of Scripture. When you can't find words to pray because you're just at you're at a low, yeah, you just you just pray your way into the faith of like that other other people have expressed. I think that can be helpful too. Mm. Yeah, it reminds me. You know, we were in this Advent season that we were talking through hope and walking mm. through hope with a a group and people. A lot of people said, "I don't know how to hope in this season." Like, I don't. I have lost hope. Um, mm. And it felt like the the community around them were able to say, hey, I could hold some hope for you in the midst of yeah. this. And here's my story of God's faithfulness. Here's my story that I was, you know, I lost hope, but then, you know, God came through. And those, those sort of things mm. within a, a community is really important is we're saying we're holding these things with open hands with you and we're walking with you in it and it's not uh just alone but even through that that hope and then seeing God's faithfulness one of the things that I've found in life is that people that have suffered a lot are very and they have a lot of joy if they've held on to mm. God through the midst of suffering they seem to have more joy than the rest of us um <laughs> so That's true so how do how does joy come in these seasons of of, of waiting in time? Uh-huh. Well, you know, I have to admit there was just something I've been thinking about even this week. It's just it's just been a different and maybe slightly difficult week. Um, not for any major reason or anything, but I gave a talk back in September and the the main point of that talk was when you don't feel the moods of faith, you can keep at the motions of faith. You can keep at the habits of faith. Mm-hmm. And I think we don't often think about hope and joy as a habit yeah. or as a practice. We sometimes think about it as a mood, you know, like you just wake up feeling joyful. Um, and sometimes that's true. I mean, I, I don't want to discount that there's an experiential element to these things. Um, But I think they come as a result of different things that we practice, you know? So joy, how do we practice joy? Like, I think one practice that's very connected to joy is gratitude, you know, is really turning our minds and our hearts to consider the things that we are receiving from God, even in the midst of a hard situation, you can see good things that you're receiving from God. You know, you can think about um, the ways that he's supporting and sustaining you through your community. Or, I mean, if you honestly get to the end of it, you're like, I thank God for the cross. I thank God that I am brought into relationship with you um, by your grace alone, that I don't have to live this season of darkness completely alone. You know, you can thank God for Psalm 88, the one psalm in the book of Psalms that ends on a very discordant note, you know, and you can say, thank you, God, for the book of Job, you know, that Job didn't get answers, but he did get an encounter with the living God. And so, Lord, you know, like these things, we practice these things, like hope isn't just something we like find randomly, accidentally, you know, on the side of the road, like it's a package we just happened upon. I like how N.T. Wright says it. He says it's actually like a tennis shot. It's like a tricky tennis shot, I think is what he says. And you just keep practicing it. And how do you do that? I think you take up, uh, I already mentioned, but I think for one way for me is just to take up language that is not my own. Because if I only take up language that is my own in a season of darkness and suffering, I'm just going to recount the hurt. I'm just going to recount the darkness. And that's not a bad thing. I think that, um, but it's a limited perspective. Mm -hmm. It means that all I can speak is my experience of darkness and aloneness and grief. So I'm going to have to find language of hope and joy. And that language is provided for me in the Bible. Um, you know, even like, a, again, a Psalm 90, like for as many days as you've made us suffer, you know, satisfy us in the morning 
with your steadfast love. Okay, don't know what that means, but somehow it means I get to say these are hard days and yet satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love. Um, and I think it's, you know, again, if, again, productivity is if we sort of return to that framework, um, it never allows you to kind of glimpse a moment of like just silly celebration and goodness, you know, cause you're, you're always just, it never allows you to observe even like celebratory time. You know, we're in a season right now of Christmas where it's like, it's not about getting things done. Yeah. It's about making room in your life for celebration and worship. Um, worship is a part of celebration, or I should say celebration is a part of worship. Um, so these are things we practice and yeah. it's okay. And I think that actually is hopeful for people who mm -hmm. don't feel like they, they can't come into the mood of hope and joy. They're like, if it's a mood, then I guess I just don't have it. I was like, well, you practice it, find some language to help you practice it. Um, and then when the experience comes, like that will be a, there will be a fullness of it. How do we help others engage in practice and spiritual practice? And even, you know, I'm even thinking of my, my son who actually is, is already receiving the demands of, of this world and this culture that we live in and basically says that. Oh, I've already learned that. I'm on to the next new thing. Um, mm -hmm. How can we help others enter into a, a lifelong practice and spiritual practice? Mm -hmm. Well, I guess like since you con you situated that in the context of parenting, I'll I'll throw back a little parenting advice. One something that stuck with me from the earliest years of parenting, a, a book I read like, many many years ago, it said, "Become who become who you should be." and stay close enough to others so that they catch it. Mm. And I think that if we live lives of rel like real communion with God, yeah. it just can't help but brim over mm. where people are with us and they think, what is that hope and joy and love and mm. peace in the midst of trials and tribulation? So there's almost like this, this like luring them in, you know, by your, by the witness of your own life. Um, and relationship is a huge part of that. Um, and relationship requires trust, right? Mm -hmm. So you stay close enough to people so that they catch it. I think the thing where that possibly breaks down is like people do need to be challenged. Um, I've found that, well, one of the things I wrote about in the book and I had somebody mention it on a podcast interview. It's like, oh, that hit a little close to home. He was a pastor. And I was talking about a sermon that our pastor gave. And he said, you know, if you could just give God five minutes of your day, um, you know, you would see your life start to transform. And I remember thinking about that and thinking, like, on the one hand, I, I really agree with that. Um, because I remember as a new Christian, that's the kind of advice that I was given, you know, is like, just start small. Start somewhere, start small in your spiritual practice. Um, I also think that people love to be called to important things. Yep. And when, you know, like let's say if somebody decides to run a marathon or, you know, start a YouTube channel or, you know, whatever, all these kinds of things that we get aspirational about, you know, normally the advice isn't start small. It's like, give it your all, give yeah. it your all. And I want to hear us say that in the life of Christian discipleship, give it your all because you just, you found a treasure. Now go sell all you have to buy that field. I want to say that to people because uh, I think until you give it your all, like it, it is kind of an all or nothing, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. That's the way Jesus said, like, if you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. Yeah. And it's only until you lose it that you will find it. So let's live lives of deep communion with God. Let's stay close enough to people so that they catch it. And then let's call them to give it their all mm. and, 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 and give them practical ways too. And I, I think, you know, it's interesting. I guess I'll just say this too, you know, as I've been thinking about time, 
one of somebody that's been helping me on some content that I'm creating for a workshop, a rule of life workshop, she was talking about functional barriers. And I was like, oh, like, that's so true that in life, like in spiritual practice would be an example. Sometimes we have resistance to spiritual practice and that that has to be addressed. And sometimes we have functional barriers. Yeah, People don't know how to get started. People have no idea what a life of prayer is supposed to look like. How do you even start reading scripture? What does it mean to serve your neighbor and share the gospel? So helping people in practical ways, I think, is a part of it, too. Yeah, I love that. That's so such great advice uh, to move us forward and through. Um, I just have a couple quick little questions at the end here. One, mm. if you go back to your 21-year-old self, what advice would you give? Uh I would give the advice to prayerfully discern my life and, and to live in response to God's voice and not everybody else's voice. I think I've spent a lot of time trying to live into other people's expectations, um, trying to like live up to other people's standards, I guess. And yeah. I've lacked courage. I would say, courage, fear not. Live in response to God's voice. Like hear that voice and follow that voice. Mm, I love that. So good and so necessary and needed. Uh, anything you've been reading or watching lately you could recommend? I have been watching The Bear, or I should say we finished The Bear, Yeah, which is a Hulu um, show. Lots of profanity. So just I'll say that at the forefront, but um, it's a great, it's a great show. Like the characters are really intense. The community, there's this like beautiful little community that grows up in this restaurant, the Chicago restaurant. Um, it's also very short. I'm kind of a short TV series sort of person. So I'm like, I think it's like eight episodes. I'm like, perfect. <laughs> That's great. Awesome. Well, Jen, thank you so much for the, the time uh, that you spent here to orient us all to a good time, a time where that we could see God at work and moving um, and that we could actually enter into his time um, that you actually grounded us in some practicals of what it looks like to inhabit time. Um, and so thank you so much for this conversation. It was, uh, it was eye-opening and hopefully helpful for a lot of people. So thank you mm. so much. Yeah, thank you again for having me. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you want to see more episodes like this, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron of the show. You can help us produce more episodes so that we can see the body of Christ look more like Jesus. If you become a patron on patreon.com slash shifting culture, uh, you will get early access to episodes. You will get episode guides. You will get bonus shows, hopefully, and more. So go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron. Also leave a rating and review on Apple podcasts. Uh, it really helps us out and helps us find new listeners to the show and just go and share this podcast with your friends, your family, your network, people that you think would enjoy it as well. Thank you again for listening to the show. I hope you have a great week.